Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student, well, now a graduate from Cal Poly Slow, and a newly minted architectural engineer. Yay! Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews between Evan and the special guests on the Resilience Advantage from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. This webcast series has spanned one year and three months, during which time it has become as important a source of information as the course I just finished at Cal Poly Slow. That's right, now I have a degree in architectural engineering, and I'm employed at a firm working in real time on real projects. It's been an amazing journey to complete my studies at Cal Poly and this podcast project side by side. I feel so ready for my new job. For any of you who have listened to our 20 episodes of Making Resilience Cool, thank you for joining me on this journey. I hope that you have learned as much about resilient design as I have, and why it is so important in all of our lives. Today, as a finishing touch to the series, we're finally going to hear directly from Evan Reese about the U.S. Resiliency Council and the inspiration behind the Resilience Advantage, the series this program is based on. So here we go. Episode 21, Wrapping It Up. Evan, the time has come. We've reached the end of Making Resilience Cool. I'm so glad we've decided to have one final, final episode where you and I can talk. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, Audrey, it's great to be back here with you. Of course, the most important question I got to know is, did you graduate? Yes, I did. I graduated Cal Poly Slow a few weeks ago. It was so bittersweet to see all my classmates and professors come together during the ring ceremony for the architectural engineering majors. All the hard work paid off. Congratulations. The architectural engineering program at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo is, is one of the best in the country. I know from experience in having hired uh, graduates and worked with graduates that you guys are some of the best engineers around. What are your plans after this? I will be working at TNS Structural as a full-time project engineer. I am super excited to start my career and get some real-world experiences. I hope your first years are as exciting as mine were back when I started. How were your first years of working, Evan? Tell me more about it. Well, okay, so when I said I hope your first years were as exciting as mine, maybe I didn't mean that literally. I graduated in June of 1988, just a year later we had the Loma Prieta earthquake. Now, I happened to be at the World Series in San Francisco at Candlestick Park, along with probably about a dozen other folks from Degenkolb Engineers, where I worked, when the earthquake hit. Talk about sort of your first experience as a structural engineer, knowing what you've learned in school, and then experiencing an earthquake 
in Candlestick Park. We were in the upper deck of the stadium, which is this old concrete building, and the upper deck cantilevers way out over the rest of the stadium. Wow, that must have caused quite a commotion within the crowd. What happened next? When the earthquake hit, the whole upper deck started bouncing up and down for more than 30 seconds. That was really my true introduction to earthquake engineering. I mean, as a young engineer, I'd only been in, you know working for like a little over a year, and then immediately to start inspecting buildings with my managers, deciding whether these buildings you know were safe to occupy or not. Um, I did that for about three weeks, and it it really had a profound impact. You see what kind of effects earthquakes can actually have. I can only imagine. So what events and people led you to conceive of and co-found USRC? Was any of it based directly on that experience? Well, I've got to tell you, Audrey, my initial sort of movement from pure structural engineering design into something that would eventually lead to the USRC was a negative experience that I had actually at Stanford. After Loma Prieta, we started working for Stanford, looking at retrofitting some of their buildings. And one of the buildings that we got was the original Stanford Art Museum. And this was a building built in 1891. Uh, when it was built, it was the largest concrete building in the world. It was the first reinforced concrete building west of the Mississippi, and it had amazing structural features for the time. I mean, thinking, you know, 1891, people were still primarily building in brick and iron. I was the project engineer retrofitting that building, and I worked with my manager, who actually was the president of Degg and Kolb Engineers, um, really one of the leaders in our industry, very highly respected. It was a career-style project to retrofit this 100-year-old building. It was really phenomenal. It won several engineering awards, you know, nationwide for its creativity. So in 1993, we attended the grand opening. The university, you know, held this big event on the lawn of the museum. Dignitaries were there. The whole, all of the design people, the architects, the engineers, of course, the contractors, but, you know, local senators and assembly members. And of course, the president of the university was there, right? And so everybody gave these speeches and it was a great time. And then afterwards, we were all mingling around. And my manager, the president of Degenkolb, and I walk up to the president of the university, okay, president of Stanford University just because we wanted to introduce ourselves. And the, the president of the university looked at us and he said, oh, well, what role did you play on this project? And my boss was very proud and said, we were the structural engineers on the job. And as soon as he said structural engineers, the president of the university's eyes looked for somebody else to talk to. And I was, I was crushed. I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. But I do see how society could undermine our work. Maybe they just don't understand what we actually do. So Evan, what did you do about this? From that point forward, I really started to change the path of my career a bit by working on uh, a piece of software that would quantify the performance of buildings and earthquakes. And it ended up being one of the first pieces of software to do that. And now there are many others. But it was a way to communicate, to demonstrate to a non-engineer, look, this is the value of a better performing building. And I worked on a lot of committees um, within the structural engineering community that focused on what was called performance-based design. 
And then around the year 2000, uh, the U.S. Green Buildings Council launched its LEED rating system. The LEED rating system was intended to demonstrate leadership in energy and environmental design. And it was a way for architects primarily to demonstrate to the wider audience that, look, when we put on solar panels in a building or we design the HVAC system to be more efficient, this is the benefit that you're getting in terms of energy savings and environmental stewardship. And LEED took off. It launched officially in the year 2000 and immediately Building owners started wanting LEED ratings. Architects started getting LEED certified. Uh, and so engineers got to watch this, right, secondhand and see how meaningful the LEED rating system was. So what was your vision for how the USRC could impact the design and engineering communities to move beyond code? Really, the vision of the U.S. Resiliency Council was to help building owners better understand the performance of buildings, both newer buildings and older buildings in earthquakes and eventually other hazards like hurricane and wildfire and, and, and flood, and also know where they can invest a little bit of money here and there to make the building perform better and what that will achieve for them in the long term. Uh, lower damage in earthquakes, higher rate of business continuity. You know, most businesses go out of business not because their building is damaged per se, but because they they are out of business for, you know, more than a couple months. Uh, and, and so it was really important that the USRC offer uh, people at the CFO level and the CEO level who are making these big decisions about money and about how quickly can we get our building built so that we can produce this new microchip or, or sell this new product so that we could give them that little extra piece of information to say, you know, if we invested a little bit more here or there, uh, we could actually make a building that will last for the long term um, as opposed to, you know, potentially having more damage than they expect. So, the rating system has to be able to speak their language. You can't simply show them calculations, right? Engineering calculations that typically aren't going to understand that. Most people won't understand that. And you can't even just say, well, trust me, it's going to make your building better. That isn't something they can put a number to. So we had to find a way, and this is where the USRC system really shines, to quantify that performance. So uh, a CFO can say, okay, I see over the life of my building, it will be out of operation, you know, 50 days less if I add this one component. Because 50 days of operation means, you know, X millions of dollars of product that they, that they are, would make. So it was very important for us to find a way to translate the engineering speak into C-suite speak, if you will. Got it. So what are you doing now? What is your prediction for the future of resilience? Well, we've got a lot of irons in the fire. There are a lot of things going on. Um, of course, there's still this advocacy component around this bill for um, retrofitting soft story buildings. We want to make sure that uh, there is specific money in the budget for the budget starting next year and, um, and that that program is developed and implemented. Um, but in addition to that, back to our sort of our core purpose for being, which is the development of these rating systems. Over the last few months, we finalized and launched our wind rating system. So, you know, back, being out in California, 
you know, earthquakes are the biggest hazard we have, but obviously there are whole other swaths of the country and the world that have other hazards. Uh, and then, you know, we are thinking about a wildfire rating system in the future. And of course that hits California, uh, it hits the West, you know, it's a lot of parts of the, of the United States. Uh, and so right now we're focusing on um, implementing the wind rating system, starting up the flood rating system, and then I guess I would say the other big thing we're really working on that is, we've been working on this for several years, but it's starting, I believe, to come to fruition, is the whole idea of incentives. We believe strongly that everybody benefits from more resilient design. And so if everybody benefits, then the cost, even as small as it may be, to implement resilience in a building, newer, newer old building, shouldn't be borne only by the building owner. Right? There should be incentives. Do incentives benefit everyone? It is a benefit for a bank to lend on a lower risk building, right? There's less chance that the building will be damaged. There's less chance that the borrower will just walk away from the building and say, you know, I'm going to leave it with the bank and the bank's got this damaged building. We believe that uh, big lenders like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or even, you know, regular bank lenders like Wells Fargo and Citibank and JP Morgan should be offering incentives for people to design their buildings more resiliently. Maybe that's lower loan rates or, you know, being able to borrow more money, that kind of thing. And the same goes with insurance, right? I mean, there's this misconception that insurance companies love to insure risky buildings because they can just charge so much more and make more money, but that's not the case at all. They would prefer every building have a very low risk. Believe me, they'll still make money on their premiums, but there's just less risk to them, uh, you know, of having to make a claim. So similarly, they should be willing to offer discounts. And we already see some of that happening in states like Alabama, which offers a discount for homes that are designed to be wind resistant. Um, so we want to kind of expand that thought process so that insurers can offer uh, discounts. Uh, but other incentives too, like if you're a big box retailer and you design one of those big box stores and you design hundreds of those things and put them all over different states like California, wouldn't it be nice if you could get a, a permit benefit, right? An expedited permit uh, to be able to build that building faster if it was resilient. It benefits the city because the city has a resilient big box store that'll be there after an earthquake or a fire or something. And of course it benefits the store by being able to sell their product more quickly. So we're working very hard uh, with these different groups to put together incentives. So again, the cost is not borne only by the building owner. That's been the problem in the past. That's what's limited investments in resilience. Well, there's two things, the education, the, the not understanding what it takes to get to a resilient building. But there's also been this sort of unwillingness to incentivize the building owners, leaving it all on their shoulders. So we're really trying to change that. So those are a couple of things that we're working on right now. How many buildings have been awarded platinum ratings in the years since USRC was founded? You'll have to say that we've been encouraged and pleasantly surprised by how valuable people are actually viewing resilience. We have 117 buildings rated. Uh, our first rating was in 2016. So that's what, less than seven years, or about seven years, uh, we rated 117 buildings. Um, just as a benchmark, uh, LEED, which everybody knows about, um, it took them 12 years since their sort of founding 
to get to their 100th rating. So, you know, we did it in just over half the time. Uh, so we're very proud of that. It shows that there is a strong demand. And we are, the nice thing is we're seeing those ratings across a full diversity of building types. You've got some high-tech office spaces that are resilient rated. Uh, you have a luxury condominium in Concepcion, Chile uh, that was rated. Um, but you know what? We also have uh, affordable housing, this building in San Francisco, for example, or we have an unreinforced masonry building that was fully retrofitted in Portland, Oregon, that is affordable housing uh, that was rated. Uh, we have hotels, we have, you know, standard office buildings, uh, we have educational facilities, right, on universities. Uh, we have all different material types, concrete, wood, steel, masonry. So we are seeing uh, a, a diversity of the building types and particularly the occupancies and who is in those buildings that are being raided. So I think that's something I'm very proud about is that we have really gotten the message across to a lot of people and not just sort of the high-end wealthy building owners that you might think would take this seriously. Everybody's taking it seriously. Uh, we even had some governments require a USRC rating for their building, for a new building, in the same way that they might require a building to be lead gold or lead platinum. Um, so that's great, and we hope to keep that growth going exponentially. And as we get into more hazards like wind and wildfire and flood, and as we can develop these incentives, I think once we get our first incentives in place, then things will really start to take off. But I've been very pleased with the results so far. As awareness of USRC ratings has grown, has there been a progression in how many buildings are receiving higher ratings? Has there been any kind of evolution like this along the way? Our first ratings were actually for buildings that were already completed before the rating system was developed. But now we see folks that go in with the idea of getting a rating in mind before the building is even built saying, I want a platinum rating. Oftentimes, we had a lab building in, in the Bay Area that, that was part of the design requirement. It has to be platinum. Um, we had a government building in Sacramento, same thing. Uh, government building in, in Oregon. Um, I think what we're finding, and this is, this is great, is that people see it doesn't necessarily take that much to go up to these top ratings. Uh, and so might as well ask for the best. If you're going to invest in resilience, why might as well go for platinum. You know, that, that, that can be a different story when it comes to seismic retrofit of buildings, right? It can be much more expensive generally to retrofit an older building. But the goal there might be to get to silver or gold, you know, depending on, on the quality of the building. But yeah, you know, we, we see people kind of trying to shoot for the best, uh, which is great. Um, and we're glad for it. Wow, Evan. That seems like resilience is on a great track for success. So tell me, how did the Resilience Advantage series come about? We really conceived of this idea that too often the different stakeholder groups that are involved in the built environment, architects, engineers, contractors, owners, residents, tenants, community leaders, um, uh, banks, insurance companies, they're all siloed. They each do their part, but they do it without a lot of intercommunication. And it was our feeling that all of those groups could benefit from watching or participating in the Resilience Advantage series by hearing from other members of other groups. So that it wasn't that we were gonna have one 
webinar for engineers and one webinar for building owners. We wanted every episode in this series to be accessible to everybody. Uh, and that meant one, that we obviously had to have conversations that were designed not to be too technical or even too business oriented. And we wanted to get away from that. We wanted something to be, again, meaningful to everybody. So we started assembling a list of people that we knew that could articulate and communicate easily to these different groups. It was this idea of assembling individuals that brought a, a perspective to resilience that could be communicated to everybody so that it wasn't a siloed approach so that you would have, you know, the same webinar, you'd have, again, people from all different backgrounds listening in. So what happened during the production of the series? Did you achieve the goals you set out to achieve? The way each webinar worked, each episode worked is we had a 20 minute video uh, that again was pieced together from long interviews. And just to go ahead, this was the purpose of the podcast that you did was to take all of that great content from these hour long interviews that maybe only got a couple minutes in each video and to, to mine more of that good information. Uh, so each of those 20 minute videos was coupled with a panel discussion where we again would bring in experts, sometimes experts from the, the video, sometimes experts that were related to the topic and we would have a moderated conversation. So those two things combined to, you know, about a 90 minute overall episode, I think was very successful. Uh, and we developed a lot of fantastic content. Um, we were able to get a range of great experts, engineers, architects, building owners, developers, a uh, whole range of business and community leaders, attorneys, uh, scientists, others that had the second advantage of being able to speak coherently and, and cogently uh, to a wide audience. The quality of the both the, the interviews and the production quality of the series really exceeded my expectations. Did your view of resilience evolve? Uh, yeah, I'd have to say it did. You know, um, in the beginning when we formed the USRC, we were primarily focused on the technical side of things, okay? We wanted to bring our engineering skill. I've been a structural engineer for, you know, 30 years plus. I wanted to bring that engineering knowledge and create an objective rating system and bang, that would be the primary thing we would do. And somehow magically, I guess we thought, <laughs> people would say, that's great, let's use it, right? Um, and, you know, the first few years of the USRC, it was difficult to kind of get traction because we didn't have kind of an educational outreach arm the way we, we are doing now. For us to be successful, resilience needed to be accessible to everybody, to even the most socially vulnerable. And then through the Resilience Advantage series, I, I think, again, there was this it takes a village evolution of, you know, of knowing that you have to do the hard work of making this a win for everybody. You have to be collaborative getting all these different perspectives and hearing what was important to each of the stakeholders that we brought on as experts and also sometimes through the questions in the, in the webinars really gave me this firm understanding that everybody sees a benefit because I do believe that resilience is a win-win-win kind of thing. Uh, and, and so getting to that point now going forward where we're really working hard on that kind of advocacy with everybody in mind was certainly an evolution I had over doing this 12 episode series. What do you see as takeaways from the series? 
Have any new laws been passed? Or are there new policies, new practices, new procedures? I give you one example during the, the, the series. Uh, we had an attorney uh, named Madison Spock. Uh, and you, you did the interview with him or you did that podcast. And he's an expert in construction law and liability issues that come up with poor construction. Boy, he was an eye-opener. We use some of his statements uh, when I talk to other groups uh, about the importance of just avoiding liability, that, you know, as a building owner, you're responsible for the people inside your building. And that means, hey, you can't put your head in the sand. You've got to find out about, you know, about these things and try and improve any risks that you have. And then, you know, I guess the other one was this issue of what does it cost to become resilient? You know, I've had people come up to me and say, well, you want a resilient building, you're going to double the price, you know, or something crazy like that. And, and having David Marr on early on in the series to talk about this low-income housing development, uh, this apartment building that he designed in San Francisco, you know, it was 100% low-income seniors, 20% of the occupants, I believe, were formerly homeless. Um, this is a building that most developers wouldn't put an extra dime into, right? Because of the cost, because of the return they're getting. Uh, and David came up with this amazing idea to put some shock absorbers in the bottom of the building. And it was like a $40 million project and these shock absorbers cost maybe an extra $100,000. So it was like a quarter of 1% of the project cost to get a performance of a building that now these seniors will be able to stay in their apartments even after like a repeat of the 1906 earthquake. Um, and that was clearly an aha moment for a lot of the folks uh, that participated in the webinar was, wow, you know, resilience is just more of a matter of a few small decisions typically made at the beginning of the, the design of a project that can make a huge difference and not a lot of cost. So we were really gratified to see a lot of those light bulbs going on with the conversations, literally as the conversations were happening. So wrapping it up, do you have any advice about stepping into the structural engineering industry for me and our young engineers in the audience? Share your wisdom. When I was at school and I was looking for my first job, one of my best friends, also structural engineer, structural engineering major, was way smarter than I am, probably the smartest engineer I know. Um, you know, he and I were competing for, for positions, right, at, at, at companies. And the company I ended up working for, Degg and Kolb Engineers, ended up hiring me more because I knew CAD than because of straight A's, which I, I didn't get uh, and my, my buddy got in college. And I had had an internship <clears throat> the summer before uh, with a city where I just learned to use CAD, which back in the 1980s was just an emerging thing. I mean, it was, you know, most people were doing stuff still by hand and drawing, but they wanted to get into CAD. And so they said, okay, we'll hire you. So that was a real game changer for me, obviously. And it was something that was becoming a game changer in the industry. Uh, and now, of course, everybody knows CAD. I mean, it's almost humorous to think of anybody doing drawings by hand at this point. Um, well, I think the same thing is coming with resilience. You know, certainly as part of doing the Resilience Advantage series, but just as much talking with people like you, with students uh, who are trying to figure out their place in the working world, you know, or the upcoming working world, I think we have another change coming. 
Uh, I think now uh, employers are going to look for students and young engineers that understand resilience, that are able to communicate it because, you know, truth be told, many of the older folks in the field, they may not know how to communicate resilience as well. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for you and, and people of your age and just getting into the field to communicate to your bosses, your managers, what you know about resilience and what you've learned about resilience, hopefully from watching things like the Resilience Advantage series. Uh, that's why we're developing educational content for universities like a seminar series that might go along with this podcast so that students can be equipped for this next phase, right? You've heard a lot of folks, no doubt, in the computer side of the world talking about artificial intelligence, AI. And now companies all wanna hire computer science graduates that know AI. Well, I'm convinced that people will wanna hire engineers that understand resilience, that are enthusiastic about it. Uh, and frankly, when I talk to students like yourself and, and I've talked to Cal Poly students before, I see the light in their eyes when it comes to knowing they can make a bigger difference in the world by contributing beyond just the design of a beam or a column, but they can you know, measure the impact that their designs are having on a community. Uh, so I think the opportunities for you are huge. Uh, I think the resilience advantage provides that perspective you get outside the engineering office. Um, and so I'll certainly encourage young people to listen to this podcast. I mean, frankly, Audrey, that's why, you know, we picked you to moderate it. I mean, I could have done it, um, but, you know, I don't think it would have been as fresh. I don't think people would have seen the kind of enthusiasm you have um, talking about resilience because it's new and something, you know, you haven't seen before. Uh, and I do hope it becomes more a part of courses. And we're working with Cal Poly right now on ways to incorporate resilience into their curriculum going forward. Uh, so yeah, I think I'm very excited uh, for you. I'm very excited for your colleagues that are also getting into the, the working world. Uh, and I'm excited for how you all are going to transform the engineering profession, you know, it's up to you all. I mean, those of us that have been around for 30, 40 years, uh, you know, we're reaching the ends of our careers and you're just starting and to understand what you know about resilience, I think can only benefit everybody. Thank you so much for the kind words and for the opportunity you gave me in hosting Making Resilience Cool. I like what you're saying about how my generation of engineers can impact the future of the field. It would be incredibly rewarding to have played a part in getting the knowledge and expertise of your guests into broader circulation. I hope that the information in this series can become better known in future courses at Cal Poly and other schools as well. And don't sell yourself short. It's your enthusiasm that has given me so much enthusiasm. It's infectious. Whatever happens, I know my perspective on engineering will surely benefit greatly from what I've learned. So thanks again for the opportunity and thanks for helping me wrap it up for this series. Well, folks, this is it. I've had a great time sharing what I found in the Resilience Advantage interviews. There's gold in there. I hope you enjoyed listening. For more resources and information about Evan Reese, the subjects covered, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Making Resilience Cool 
is a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. I am your host, Audrey Liu, now officially an architectural engineer. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you too had your eyes opened to the importance of resilient design. Signing off.